Welcome to Thoughts on Record, official podcast of the Ottawa Institute of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. Each episode, we explore topics of interest to clinicians and mental health consumers from a cognitive behavioral perspective. I'm your host, Dr. P. Kelly. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Dr. Adele LaFrance is a clinical psychologist, research scientist, author, and co-developer of emotion-focused treatment modalities, including emotion-focused family therapy. A frequent keynote speaker at professional conferences, Adele has published extensively in the field of emotion and health, including a clinical manual on EFFT published by the American Psychological Association. She is passionate about helping parents to support their kids in a way that is informed by the latest developments in neuroscience. The knowledge and tips in her book, What to Say to Kids When Nothing Seems to Work, is an effort to do just that. With colleagues, she also makes a wealth of caregiving resources available at no cost at mental health foundations. Adele is also a leader in the research and practice of psychedelic medicine with a focus on ayahuasca, MDMA, psilocybin, and ketamine. Currently, she is a collaborator and clinical supervisor on the Empirical College Study for Psilocybin and Anorexia Nervosa. Adele is also a founding member of the Love Project. Adele has a particular interest in mechanisms and models of healing, including emotion processing, spirituality, and family-based psychedelic psychotherapy. She is a frequent contributor in the media relating to emotion, health, and the science of psychedelics. Before we get to today's episode, an important disclaimer. Today's episode is for general information only. Although we are discussing insights gained from formal scientific research of psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy, it needs to be underscored that psychedelic compounds are powerful, psychoactive chemicals that can carry significant risk of harm for certain vulnerable individuals, especially those with active symptoms of psychosis or bipolar disorder, or a clinical or family history of psychosis or bipolar disorder. Use of these compounds outside of research settings is also currently illegal in many jurisdictions. As such, in the discussion of psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy, we are in no way endorsing or encouraging the use of psychedelic compounds for any particular individual. If you are interested in further information around psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy, please check this episode's show notes for suggestions around sources of reputable information around ongoing research trials in this area. Dr. Adele LaFrance, welcome to Thoughts on Record. How are you today? I'm doing very well. Thank you very much for having me today. You are very welcome. Uh, it's so nice to have you on the podcast. I've heard many lovely things about you from a mutual uh, connection of ours. I, I'm really, really excited to dig into our topic today, which is the role of love in conventional psychotherapy, really from the perspective of lessons learned from your experience with psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. Psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy and Really, psychedelics themselves have come up frequently on the podcast from a variety of different perspectives, and I think this will be an interesting and unique way of building on some of the conversations that we've had to date. Awesome. So Adele, just to begin, I I know you have been very involved with and made a number of really important contributions in the area of emotion-focused therapy, or EFT. Mm -hmm. I was hoping that you could perhaps describe your journey a little bit with respect to conventional psychotherapy to psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. Sure, for sure. I mean, there are two sides to that story. There's the very professional side to that story, and then there's the deeply personal side to that story. So let me start with the professional, and then I'll go to the personal. Um, So I've been working in eating disorders since the beginning of my career. In fact, I was trained in Ottawa at the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario, which was a beautiful experience. And um, yeah, I really dedicated my life to treating families where eating disorders were 
a problem in the family and um, quickly saw that, especially at higher levels of care, more was needed to be able to reach these people in a good way. Um, and so I started looking at, you know, what could be helpful, what could be integrated into the existing models. That's how I came to learn of EFT and then began the development of EFFT. And yeah, it was great. I mean, it was really exciting and um, keeping us very, very busy. And then one uh, day I went to uh, listen to Gabor Mate speak on one of the many topics that he speaks about. And during the Q&A period, uh, someone asked about ayahuasca and I had never heard that word before, but I had read every one of his books. And so I'm like, wait a minute, I know everything this man has ever written and said publicly, you know, what is that about? And his answer was really um, piqued my interest because he's like, well, I'm not really here to talk about that. But on Tuesday, there's going to be a documentary on the nature of things featuring my work with ayahuasca. And so, you know, the combination of the, the word and his response made it so that I felt like I really needed to watch this documentary. And wow, um, what an impact it had on me. It showed his use of ayahuasca with individuals who had really, really serious substance um, problems. And what I was seeing was nothing short of, you know, miraculous in terms of the kinds of healing that these people were experiencing with this plant medicine from the Amazon. And so I contacted him a number of times until he responded. <laughs> And just said, like, I need to learn more. I need to learn more. And so eventually um, I did learn more and I was able to learn with him and from him. And then in other ways, you know, started to do uh, research related to this plant medicine. And yeah, it's been an amazing journey. So that's the professional side. The personal side was at the same time I was going through infertility struggles. And I had gone through a couple of... Um, full cycles of in vitro fertilization and hadn't worked. And at that point, at the same time, I would have, I was in that place of like, I'll do anything while also really knowing about the importance of the mind and body connection. And so that's really what pushed me kind of over the edge to try ayahuasca myself. And so I went abroad to the jungle to give it a try. And, you know, um, it was life-changing. It was absolutely transformative. In the end, I never did have a child of my own. I have beautiful stepchildren who I'm so grateful for. Um, but ayahuasca was a huge, huge part of my journey, not just of metabolizing the pain of infertility, but also seeing the spiritual aspects of my journey to a place where I could actually feel really, really grateful for the path that I was shown. So both motivations, you know, really got me to this place. And now I'm like, it's everywhere. I'm doing everything. I feel like I do professionally has something to do with psychedelics, which is funny because it really wasn't part of my youth at all. If you'd be comfortable, I would love to know more if, if you could speak about it, that process of metabolizing pain a little bit that you referred to. I've heard many people talk about accounts of being able to be arm's length to their anxiety, see it as like a black crumpled up ball of some kind and swatted mm -hmm. away. And then they, they were no longer hampered. Uh, can you, can you provide a little bit of a window into perhaps what that might've been like, if it can even be described in words, or is it more, uh, intangible than that? Well, you know, there are experiences with psychedelics that we would call, um, intangible. In fact, 
Um, when we when we refer to a mystical experiences, which is a word we hear often in the context of psychedelic psychotherapy, one of the four qualities of a mystical experience is that it's ineffable. It's it's really really hard to put into words. But there are many other types of experiences that what can one can have um, using psychedelics in a therapeutic setting, and like you described, one of them can be um, to um, evoke, attend to, move through emotions or painful memories in a way that feels manageable. You know, like without ego loss, without disorientation, without dissociation, for example. Um, Another way that psychedelics help to heal is that it interrupts what people are calling the default mode network. So if you're used to thinking a certain way or seeing the world a certain way, it kind of puts that program, that software program on pause so that you can use different aspects of your psyche to then look at that same problem, challenge, difficulty, or even memory for that matter. Um, so those are a couple of ways that it works. It also, that being said, I mean, I have had experiences myself where I was not experiencing my pain from an arm's length. It felt like excruciating actually. Um, and, but somehow, somehow you're able to get through it. And wow, when you're on the other side of that, it really boosts your resilience in terms of your capacity to do really, really hard things. But I'm talking about the legal use of um, consciousness altering substances in a setting where there are trained facilitators, guides, psychotherapists, physicians, et cetera, who are supporting the process prior to the actual ingestion of the substance during and then also for a period of time afterwards. So I feel like that just needs to be said, you know, because um, I, I just, I work with clinical populations. And so there are risks there and sensitivities there that um, are just really important to talk about too. Yeah, I think we would be remiss to maybe not at least briefly go over what some of those risks are, because certainly there'll be folks listening who mm -hmm. are coming at, at this conversation from a position of gathering information to explore pathways to healing, right? So if someone's thinking about going this route again in, in a structured kind of way, what do they need to know going in? Uh, they need to know that healing causes disruption, not just to the inner landscape, but to the systems in which they live. And that's true with conventional psychotherapy, right? You know, as you heal, as you learn to cultivate self-love or as you learn to identify and express boundaries, it can create difficulties in other aspects of life that need to be kind of sorted through, right? So that's, that's true for conventional psychotherapy. But with psychedelics, it increases the intensity of everything. It amplifies everything, including the potential disruption internally and in the system. So I'll give you an example. Um, someone goes to have a uh, psychedelic assisted psychotherapy experience, let's say in the MDMA study, and they come to terms with the truth that they are absolutely exhausted and they learn about it in an incredibly embodied way so that they can no longer deny how absolutely exhausted they are. And, um, you know, they have to make some real serious changes in their life 
And that may cause stressors in the home, whether they be financial or in terms of role distribution, or even just them feeling bad that they're not producing as much as they have in the past, especially in the kind of world that we live in. And so I just want people to know that when you, when you turn towards any sort of healing, but in particular psychedelics, you have to be prepared for potential disruptions. Now, those disruptions are always in the service of improving your alignment in your life, you know? So it's a positive thing, but like any growth, if it happens too fast or without the appropriate supports, it can be uh, painful. Other risks that I would like people to know is that so far what the research is suggesting is that there are some people who have certain, let's say, profiles of thinking or feeling that can increase their risk of uh, challenging experiences and increase the risk of actually developing uh, more serious mental health issues after the fact. So people who have a history of bipolar disorder or history of psychosis, um, there's already that potential for like a mind split or a loosening of the mind. You know, we really want to caution those people that the, actually the use of psychedelics could be uh, dangerous. And then the last thing I'll say is that, um, I mean, there are others, you know, we want to make sure that there are medical, psychological um, issues that are not contraindicated. But the last thing that I feel that we don't talk enough about in our field, in the field of psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, is um, who's going to receive you when you return? Do they know what you went out and did? Do they support it? Um, are they aware that is going to lead to potential disruption of relational systems and otherwise? And then even at the most basic level, and I have seen this firsthand, you know, um, in, in terms of my research, are you going back to a job? Are you going back to a system of friends? Do you have housing, you know, at the most basic level? Because if you don't, then it might be worthwhile to work on building up those structures before then um, engaging with this kind of work. I guess it's the old thing, right? If it's powerful enough to help, then it's also powerful enough to hurt, right? You Correct. have to be treated with the you know due amount of respect given the potential intensity mm-hmm. of that experience from the sounds of things. Exactly. So in the service of edging towards our topic today, which of course is love within psychotherapy, Um, what are some of the common experiences that people report within the scope of psychedelic psychotherapy that has given you insights about the role that love might play? And again, I think you've touched on a couple, again, that sort of disruptive kind of function, Mm -hmm. but what are some of the other maybe kinds of experiences that have informed you again, from that love perspective? Well, yeah, it's been an interesting journey, um, in terms of like these observe, making these observations, uh, more, concretely, if you will. So psychedelics are are known to induce spiritual or mystical experiences like we talked about. And um, so far in the research, uh, some research that I've done and, and others have focused on emotion processing as a mechanism of change, these peak experiences followed by some sort of emotional breakthrough, But when I was doing qualitative research, now interviewing people who had participated in in different psychedelic assisted psychotherapies or ceremonial healing contexts, one of the themes that kept repeating itself was this theme of love. Either love felt for others and how healing it was to reconnect with that experience within oneself, that capacity within oneself, 
or love felt from others, like a remembrance of sorts, like, oh my God, that person, they really did love me. Or despite my parents, you know, difficulties being there for me in these ways, oh, wow, they, they really did love me. And that's the, another beautiful remembrance. Um, experiences of the cultivation of self-love, which I think we could talk about for a whole podcast in terms of like the importance of self-love. And then unique to psychedelic assisted psychotherapy are experiences of being love. And that one's a bit harder to describe, but um, it kind of feels like you lose your sense of self as human. Your body is overtaken by this energy, this powerful energy of beauty, of connection, of love. And it's like radiating, you know, through the universe. And so people who are lucky enough to have that experience can come back to that experience. I mean, all those manifestations of love in the context of psychedelic assisted psychotherapy are super powerful because anything you experience with a psychedelic is amplified in terms of its healing potential and its transfer into your life. But so those are the four kind of domains that I was really, really kind of interested in and starting to define with some of my colleagues. And then there was, like I said, like this push to look at the power of spirituality as a um, change agent, you know, like as a predictor for outcome later on. And when I was looking at the questions and when I was uh, reviewing other people's accounts of spiritual experiences, there was a lot of overlap with love. So there was some distinctness between the two concepts, spirituality and love, but there was a lot of overlap. And I just found it curious that that word wasn't necessarily being used as explicitly as often, which is funny because spirituality was kind of coming out of the closet, so to speak, because it too had been quite um, a taboo word. And so I feel like, okay, now that we're getting some traction here at spirituality, perhaps we can also talk about this separate but related construct and, you know, that of love. Oh man, I have so many questions that are bubbling up just from that little bit that you've said there. Um, on that phenomenon of being love, mm -hmm. and, and again, appreciating this is completely speculative on your part. You know, do you think that's an artifact of sort of neurobiology? Like if you, if you torque the system in a certain way, you'll promote that experience? Mm -hmm. Or do you think there's the possibility that the psychedelic experience allows access to a, a different plane of reality of some kind? And I, and I know that sounds a bit woo, but I mean it really quite a different form of reality, perhaps. And again, yeah. with the caveat yeah. that probably nobody has the answer, maybe it doesn't even matter. You know, as mm -hmm. long as you're having the experience is real in a sense, right? But what, do you have any thought on that about the sort of meta aspects of, of the experience? Well, you know, I think it's an important question in the manner that it gets us talking about these concepts. So, you know, what, whatever the answer is right now, I feel is secondary to the importance of having these discussions. Um, my, my personal feeling about it is that it can't just be intrapsychic. Otherwise, the outcomes related to the experience would be focused mostly on our own survival, our own well-being you know, where when people have that experience, not only does it lead to intrapsychic outcomes that are positive, but it also leads to um, outcomes related to uh, community and um, caring more for nature, caring more for animals, caring more for each other, caring more for humanity, you know? And so 
my senses, my guess, and you're right, it is totally speculative, is that it, it maybe does touch into the collective, you know, something greater that unifies us um, because of, you know, what it does to us when we have those experiences, if that makes sense. No, it does for sure. I mean, I've always wondered, like, why would we even have the capacity to have these experiences? Mm. And and I think even, I think there is documented cases where people have these experiences spontaneously mm-hmm. without uh, an exogenous chemical being administered. So it's within the realm of the human experience to have these things, uh, you know, just because, but we do know cultures have used these plant medicines for, you know, thousands of years and, and treated them with a great deal of, of respect. So mm-hmm. no, I, I just think, again, I don't think anybody has the answer, but it's, I love the mystery that comes with it. You know, mm-hmm. I love the, pos- the, the possibility uh, around it. And I, I think a lot of other people find that attractive too. It, it's attractive, but I would also say it's the deterrent, you know, because, Mystery can be scary. Uh, mystery can be scary. And so I think that we also have to be very patient with one another um, because going into these waters, it means that, um, well, things might get uncomfortable um, because we're still kind of in recovery from a lot of religion-based trauma. And so spirituality and religion tend to be uh, interconnected for many and you know one of the one of the reasons why I think um, these concepts are just now starting to be talked about is because it's can be overwhelming <laughs> to really, really, really put our mind to you know mystery. But yes, I, on the other hand, we are kind of like moths to a flame, you know, when it comes to that kind of thing. Like there is something in us that is propelling us forward to learn more. And I've certainly experienced that over the course of my life, where. I had different levels of interest increasing over time, you know, um, in terms of learning more about this stuff. Yeah. Such a good reminder that for the human mind, typically new and threatening are the same thing until proven otherwise. That's true. We're novel novelty phobes, uh, in, uh, in many ways, which are, you know, which would be evolutionarily prudent from a lot mm-hmm. of different lenses. Exactly. Adele, I think love is a very loaded word in the sense that it means many different things to many different people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's romantic love. There's the love between a parent and a child. There's love between friends. Mm-hmm. In, in the way that we're refer- referring to it in this conversation, how do you think about love or how would you define it? Oh, gosh, it is, that is, I mean, it is such a difficult question. And I've been emailing, you know, my friends and colleagues in this space, both the psychotherapeutic space and the psychedelic assisted psychotherapeutic space. And when it comes in the, in the frame of healing, you know, if I were to describe it, I would talk about a a very powerful and very intelligent energy um, that can lead to healing. And that perhaps is the source of all things. So that actually dovetails so nicely to where I was going to go with this is, and this came up for me when you're talking about people making changes. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's a truth in love that can be trusted? You know, is there, is there a wisdom in there? And probably, probably playing a bit fast and loose with the terms, but I'm a, you know, as psychotherapists, we're taught not to be overly directive with our clients, right? Like say someone comes in and they're having a marital challenge of some kind, you know, it's not our place to say, Hey, you need to leave that guy or, or whatever, right? We, mm-hmm. we would help to explore the issue open-endedly and see where their values take them. On the other hand, in this sort of, in this paradigm, love is sort of being directive in a way, right? Like it, it's jumping into the driver's seat. It sounds like, and, and providing some feedback about 
maybe the direction that things are going in. So what mm-hmm. am I am I barking up the right tree at all there? Is love being leveraged as sort of a truth detector in some way? Well, I mean, I don't know, but when you say leverage, leverage by who, you know, because these experiences tend to happen spontaneously, although, um, yeah. So, um, so do you mean leveraged by, by the client? So when, when that experience, when one of those four experiences of love presents Mm -hmm. itself to the client during this experience yes, and they, they, and they're attuned to it, they've connected with it. Um, you know, can, can, do you feel that people can reliably use those experiences to get at some sort of truth in their life? Absolutely. I mean, uh, love is truth, you know, and truth is love. For example, telling someone the truth about how you feel and what you need is actually love. It's love for self. It's love for other. And many um, philosophers and now even scientists believe that love is what's most true. But it doesn't mean that there are no boundaries. There are no limits. You know, there's no separation, of course. Um so for example, like one of my definitions of anger is I love you, but I love me more. So it, it's, it doesn't mean that because I love you, I'm going to eclipse my own needs or sacrifice myself. It's like, no, no, no. Self-love always needs to come first. And self-love can mean saying no to someone or uh, breaking up with someone or leaving a friendship uh, behind because it's no longer in service, you know? So, so yeah, that's, it's, it is, it's, it's, it's a beautiful, uh, compass as long as one makes, you know, one is aware that there's more than one aspect, you know, of love that we really, really need to kind of be aware of. Um, yeah. So I think that's, that's part of the interesting part. The other issue, the other part that's quite healing about those experiences of love is that, when you experience them in your body, which often happens with psychedelics, it's an embodied experience, you can come back to them. You can remember them. And so when things are hard in life, you can reread your journal and then trigger that body-based experience of feeling love for others, feeling love from others, feeling love for self, or that experience of being love. How resistant are people to the experience of self-love? I mean, again, as a therapist, when you encounter clients that have, say, core beliefs around defectiveness or Mm -hmm. failure, when people from the outside extend love towards them, it makes them wildly uncomfortable, right? They they run from like, who am I to be be experiencing love from another person, let alone myself? Mm -hmm. Do people in your experience fight that experience? And if they fight it, what does it look like? And then what, how do you help them to embrace that experience? Mm Or is the experience so powerful that you can't resist it? It's, yeah. It sort of over, overwhelms you. Both, you know, so people report having these experiences of self-love that are so powerful that there's nothing their mind could do to um, convince them otherwise, you know, in the experience. Later, they might have to remember to remember, you know, that embodied experience. But some of them are just so absolutely powerful and life-changing that they stick with you forever, you know? Um, other times though, they can be extremely painful. Realizing that you are worthy of love can be really painful because when we're young and our environment isn't supporting us in the way that we need, we have two choices. We can either, um, lean into the fact that our, some of our most basic needs are not being met and that our environment is perhaps uh, chaotic you know, and that's destabilizing for a young mind. 
Or we can create a false belief that we are not lovable enough and that we have to work harder to be nicer, sweeter, cuter, pleasing. And that gives us a sense of control, a sense of regulation and so on. Uh, The problem is we don't remember when that new software program of negative core belief gets activated. And then that ends up being how we move through life, you know, with that negative core belief. So when that core belief is lifted and we remember that we are beings of love, that we are worthy of love, that we are loving and lovable exactly as we are, there actually can come a cascade of grief of like, holy shit, I forgot this. And my life choices thus far have at least in part been influenced by this lie that I told myself to help me to survive something that was overwhelmingly painful. And oh my gosh, what does this mean for me going forward? So with great healing often comes great uh, grief, but it's the kind of suffering that I call and others call noble suffering. It is the suffering that leads to something bigger and better and something more positive than one can even imagine. So it's worth it. In other words, it's not just suffering, you know, like chasing your tail. Would it be fair to say, or may, or is it a bridge too far to say then that the, the psychological origin story for, for the average human being is one of self-love and that gets corrupted along the way, mm-hmm. uh, as a means of surviving whatever circumstance that may be presented, they may have to derail that narrative of self-love absolutely, in order to survive. And we just forget to turn it off. Uh, yeah, we don't. Point. Yeah, exactly. It's unconscious. And again, no one's fault, right? Because as humans, we're evolving, you know, together. And so it, it's no one's fault that this happens. It's actually quite clever. And it's led to our evolution, um, up until now. So no, I don't want any parent blaming anything here because like we can just follow the line all the way back and forward you know we're all growing and learning together but yeah we are like if you even if you look at our emotional system our emotional apparatus when we're born you know uh when we're hungry we say so (laughs) and if we're not being listened to we say so louder you know like there's no shame in assertion when we're born uh then look at ourselves when we're six or ten or 25, or in my case, 41. Um, And when I assert myself in certain scenarios, certain situations, certain contexts, I still feel shame. I still feel like, oh, maybe I'm being a little too hard or bitchy or selfish, you know? So that's programming as a result of our cultural conditioning, societally, like not family-based. I mean, it, it gets transmitted through the family, but it is definitely cultural, um, and societal that's conditioning. So I think that's kind of proof that we come into this world, loving ourselves so fiercely that, you know, we don't care how loud we're screeching because we are really, really wanting to care for ourselves and have our, and have our beings cared for by others. I would love to get your take on this conundrum around self-love that I see a lot as well, where I have clients, I I try to get clients to extend that towards themselves. Mm -hmm. And what happens is that they are, they express a fear of being narcissistic, right? right. Especially they don't want to echo maybe what they saw in a parent. They don't want to be it. They don't want it to be all about them, quote unquote. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's what I try to tell the client is like, you know, you're so low on the self-love 
dimension, even if we moved you like two standard deviations, you, you are so far away mm-hmm. from, from the thing that you fear. But I'm wondering if, the, if, if that's a falsehood, if they're not even the same, they're not even on the same continuum. So well, how, how would you yeah. think through this? Well, I mean, listen, there are risks to increasing your self-love in relationship. And so people who are um, anxious about being left or about having breaches in relationships are going to be very, very resistant to self-love because their relationships so far have been founded on these unconscious contracts. I will love you more than I love me. And so when one starts to renegotiate those unconscious contracts internally and relationally, sometimes they do uh, have losses, you know, in relationships. So I would always validate that fear. That fear comes from somewhere. It's a, it's an emotional memory, you know, and it may no longer be applicable and it may be extended way too far and way too broadly. And that's the reason why, you know, they're in therapy to help them to reconnect to that part of themselves. But I I would want to support them to move forward in a way that is very slow and very manageable so that every step of the way they can handle what comes next. Now, the other piece though, that this brings up for me is the critical importance of our field of psychotherapists to move towards showing love in psychotherapy and showing love explicitly in psychotherapy, because we do know from developmental psychology that the experience of being loved transforms in the capacity to love oneself. And so until that person gets there, we have this amazing opportunity to connect with a pure, safe, ethical love for our clients that they can then metabolize into worthiness or into self-love. Can you unpack that just a little bit more? Because it sounds incredibly important. But I know a lot of people listening will have that sort of ethical thing go off. And I know you're very clear to say it to ethical, right? So mechanistically, operationally, you know, process wise, what does that look like? Uh, How can people know that they're within the guardrails where they can, they can, you know, use that as a really effective intervention, but they are not setting themselves up or the client up for a really, really negative outcome of some kind? Intended or not. No, I think this is, I think this is probably the most important part of the conversation because historically um, love has been used in some contexts by some people um, to engage in misdeed and violence and abuse. And the, the, the field of psychotherapy is no exception. Um, There have been countless reports of people in positions of power as psychotherapists, uh, of psychiatrists who have engaged in um, romantic, you know, experiences, sexual experiences with their clients. And we know that that just doesn't work. And actually it, I I wanna swear, it really fucking harms people. (laughs) You know, like it is serious business here. The other thing is that so many of our clients come to us because of hurts by people who, you know, loved them or were supposed to love, were supposed to love them, you know, in a, in a certain way. And so it really is delicate territory. So I'm glad that we're kind of underscoring it. Um, even in our culture, love it has been, is being used commercially uh, to, to separate people from others, 
Um, and so, yeah, we, yes, all yes, yes, yes. We need to do this carefully. So what do we, what do we do? Well, if I were speaking to a psychotherapist and I, I mean, I just was recently and they said, I am nervous about doing this in particular with my female clients, this psychotherapist was male. And I said, okay, tell me why you're worried. He said, well, I'm worried because, um, one of my client's difficulties is, um, being able to hold her own in romantic relationships. And she does has a, have a history of abuse. And so I'm terrified that if I tell her that I love her, that somehow it's going to give her the impression that it is romantic love. And then we're screwed, you know? And so what I said to him is like, use. So first of all, I think that's extremely wise and extremely thoughtful you know, there's no part of me that would be like, well, you know, still it's better if you do that. No, I'm like, okay, use the wisdom of your anxiety to inform how you do it. And so it could sound like this to the client, you know, um, I've recognized more and more that part of what heals in psychotherapy is the deep care felt between the therapist and the client. And some would call that unconditional positive regard. That's the technical term for it, but that term was coined long ago when it was really, really uncomfortable to talk about it more explicitly, you know, to talk about what I think they were talking about more explicitly, like the word love. Now, that's a risky word because it's so loaded, you know, in terms of romanticism and sexual energy. And I would love to talk to you about my definition of love, which is a human love, which is a deep care and affection for you and for your inner world and for your life. And that can be hard to talk about because this is kind of a challenging relationship where there's a lot of rules so that we can optimize your healing and it's time limited, you know, and it's not like I can go to your wedding if you invite me because of those rules, those good rules that are in place, you know, to, to protect the nature of our work. But but the truth is, I would like to talk to you about, you know, how inspired I am by you, how touched I am by you, how moved I am by you, how much I have love for you and this particular kind of, you know, really clear, really uh, healthy love, if that makes sense. No, it makes perfect sense. One of the things I know to be true from my own experience, and I think the literature suggests this, that clinicians and clients can have very different interpretations of the same event in therapy, both in terms of the meaningfulness or its effectiveness. Or mm -hmm. I've also been struck too, where clients will say, I always remember that one thing that you said, I'll have no recollection of having said it, but it really, yeah. really resonated with them, which is, which is awesome. Um, do we know, is there any research or is there any sort of anecdotal body of, of evidence around how clients respond to that kind of messaging, what mm -hmm. they take away from it? Yeah. And, and, and honestly, you don't even need to use the word love. If that doesn't feel comfortable for you, you can say care, you can say affection, you can say, you know, all those things. Um, so I've been interviewing people about this topic. Um, people who have experienced the love felt from their therapists, both in conventional psychotherapy and in the context of psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. And one of the people that I interviewed, beautiful, beautiful woman, she had a uh, 30 year eating disorder, violent, you know, very violent eating disorder. And she healed through psychedelics. And I asked her about the role of love in her psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. 
And what she said, I actually alluded to it a little earlier. It blew my mind and it's changing everything for me in terms of how I teach. Okay. But also how I practice, how I be. She said that in the psychedelic assisted psychotherapy um, experiences that she had, therapists felt much more free to talk about love, the nuances of love and to show love, even using the L word. But mostly she said, when she could feel the affection that the therapist had for her, both during the experience and in between, she said, it made me feel worthy. And that worthiness made it so that I could go deeper in my work. And it made it so that I felt like I deserved better, you know, for myself in terms of my own recovery, but also in terms of my relationships, my experience with the world. And so I started really contemplating that. I thought, holy shit, when they feel our love, it is chemically metabolized into self-love. And when you have psychedelics involved, that remember everything is amplified. Now, again, like for people who have discomfort around this, I don't think you need to use the L word because my very first psychotherapeutic experience as a client was with a neo-Freudian psychiatrist, you know, and it was couch free association and nothing else. Like it was the tabula rasa, you know, like blank slate. He hardly ever cracked a smile in the year that we worked together twice a week, three hours a week. And yet my last, my last session, which incidentally happened before I had to move to Ottawa for my internship, I was bawling my eyes out. Why? Because I could feel his love for me. I could feel his affection for me. And it was such a safe container, you know, that being seen, being witnessed that throughout that whole year, even without him giving me any sort of, well, very little verbal or visual response. Cause he was even outside of my line of sight. Right. Um, it still made it in, it still made it in, but for people who have more serious, um, dip challenges and particular eating disorders, you know, where there is such a block there in terms of feeling other people's love. I think we need to be a bit more intentional, a bit more explicit, a bit more direct so that it can, it can make its way in. This sounds so incredibly powerful. It's so interesting to think about this as a like untapped dimension of, of psychotherapy. W one thing that does come to mind for me is, is clinician burnout in a paradigm like this. Yeah. Right. Like, you know, a, as someone who has played with various levels of intensity in terms of engaging with clients and, and trying to find the right mix, uh, I do a lot of trauma work and that can be very, very uh, it can be very, very heavy emotional lifting to be really, really present yeah. <laughs> with that client in, in, in that moment, right? And you have to be, you know, from a self-care perspective, really manage your dose. So from, from your lens within this paradigm, how can clinicians manage what will come with this kind of engagement with clients? Or do you, or do you feel like it might even free them up? Like, is it, is it yeah, actually even yeah. easier? Well, okay. So partly, I think your question is, is partly my fault. Okay. Because like, uh, if, if people were to use like words to describe me, one of the words people would use is be intense. <laughs> and I'm like, I, I am aware of that. Okay. Like I come across super intense. And so uh, let me just say that manifesting manifest manifestations of love, communication of love, it can be like as simple as a playful anecdote, you know, 
on the way from the weight room to the therapist office. So love doesn't have to be this like super intense, um, communication of like deep, powerful energy that comes from the source of all things. It's really just conveying to the person like, gosh, you really matter to me. And whether or not you, um, are motivated to heal from this issue that has brought us together. I want to be for here for you. And I am cheering for you. And I really, really care for you, you know, and, and, and if you want to be brave, you know, and I, and I love you, I love you in this moment, no matter what. So that's part of it is that like we do. And I don't think it's just my intensity. I also think that like in our culture, the expectations around love is that it's like, it's intense at times. Um, so that's the one thing, but the other thing is, yeah, I do think when we engage with our clients in this way, um, it does free us up. However, it also makes it more difficult for us to have those separations, you know, between each other. There's this really beautiful quote that I am going to, um, screw up, (laughs) but it sounds a little bit like if you're here to help me just for the sake of helping me, no, thank you. But if you're here to help me because you know that our collective salvation depends on this relationship, you know, then yes, let's hold each other up. And one of the guiding lights for my own work as a therapist is that I heal myself to heal others. I have a very, you know, um, dedicated practice of self-exploration and, and healing. Um, so I heal myself to heal others, but I also heal others to heal myself. And so while I fully respect and honor the boundaries that are necessary in the psychotherapeutic space in order to be able to help people in a way that is safe, ethical, and productive, I'm also aware that we're all in this together. We are all just walking each other home and there is something for me to learn from everyone. Um, The final point that it arises for me is the need for self-care. And so if, if there's burnout, then there's an indication there that there's a lack of self-love on the part of the therapist. Because self-love is the capacity to say yes and no as necessary when the need arises. And so sometimes the most loving thing a therapist can do is to um, take a break <laughs> uh, or stop their, stop their flow of referrals, you know? Um, and so what's most important there is not whether or not I can be more loving in my psychotherapy It's whether or not I am getting the help that I need in order to love myself the best ways that I can, um, you know, through these methods of, of self-care. It's a bit of a generalization, but why do you think that it might be hard for therapists on average to extend self-love to themselves? I mean, I see this with trainees all mm-hmm. the time where I'm constantly having to sort of encourage them to you know, take care of themselves or certainly be mindful of the impact that things are having to not schedule in people, you know, mm-hmm. when they actually don't have time or, you know, things like that. What is it about our makeup that might predispose us to falling into this trap? Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's just therapists <laughs> who have that difficulty. You know, I think as a culture, uh, we're along, along, you know, if we think about the developmental arc, um, of our society. I think, I think we're all becoming more aware of the need for self-love as a fundamental experience, you know, and as a work in progress. 
Um, probably therapists may have more of an Achilles heel in that domain because there's this inclination to want to help. Um, and there's then, then there's this belief in oneself that I can help and therefore I must help, you know? And I mean, gosh, I'm working on that for sure, because I feel like, oh, you know, like um, this particular problem, I know I'm really good at this really complex problem. And so like, if I don't do it, who will, you know, and you kind of wrap yourself up in ego a little bit, if I may say about myself, you know, like my ego does get me into trouble in that way. Um, so I think, I think it's a practice. And I think that as supervisors, when we do that for ourselves, you know, we do it for others. Um, most recently I had a, a a serious issue that came up in my life that required me to step away from my work engagements for a period of time. And I was devastated. I was trying to find all of the ways that I could work around it. And I remember getting counsel from a mentor and he said, you know, the most loving thing you can do for yourself and for others is to tell the truth. And then I had another experience um, where in, the, in an ayahuasca ceremony, I was told I had this contract that I was working on that I had just agreed to is to do a training overseas in Asia, long, long flight. You know, I was looking at the flights, long, long flight. And I didn't want to do it, but um, it was for an organized, a faith-based faith organization. They didn't have a lot of money. They really, really needed it. And so I felt compelled to do it. And so I'm, I'm in this ayahuasca experience and I have this download, you know, this, this message sent to me. If you take that training, it will tip the scales for you into cancer. In other words, if you go, the stress it's going to put on your body is going to tip you into an experience of cancer. And my mom's had cancer three times, three different kinds. And so, you know, that's on my mind. And it was amazing in that experience. I get the download. If you go, you'll get cancer without skipping a beat. My response was I'll get treatment. That was a massive awakening for me in terms of lack of self-love, out of duty, you know, out of commitment. I said I would, they need it. And so it really, really shook me up in terms of what my core values are now, actually. Um, but yeah, so I think that it's natural, it's normal. It's perhaps worse in people who feel that drive to help, to save, you know? Um, and it's something that we continuously have to check in on ourselves. And it's a, it's a freaking gift when we love ourselves and we show to other people that we love ourselves, no matter the cost or even in challenging situations, you know, we're modeling by example. And I'm proud to say that I did not go to Asia. I was able to withdraw from that commitment. Two weeks later, I found a replacement and it ended up being better for everybody. <laughs> Oh, that's fantastic. What a powerful story. I know from my own therapy work, it is a terrible experience and realization to have that insight that you do not uh, trust yourself to respect yourself and to love yourself. Like mm -hmm. to, to have that awakening is very, very, uh, it causes a lot of disequilibrium. Mm -hmm. And when you look back on your life, there's a lot of grief that will come up in terms of what you recall having done to yourself yeah. uh, ultimately. That's right. I, I remember, I remember reading, uh, I think it was a, a Gabor Mate book. I forget which one it was. It doesn't matter. I remember after reading it, I put a post-it on my laptop that said cancer and pain mm. to try and remind myself when I was scheduling, mm -hmm. not to self-sacrifice and not to overschedule yeah. stuff. Yeah. And I don't, I wasn't far enough along in my journey, I think to sort of really internalize that, but that was the first clue of kind of connecting with, yeah. with, with that piece. 
I think more recently, some of the imagery that I've used that I found really helpful, I'll just pass it along in case it helps another mm-hmm. human being out there listening, is I have imagined sort of, I've, I've envisioned being in an abusive, neglectful relationship with myself, which I think is true. And I've imagined at every little fork in the road, taking myself out of myself and putting that person outside is like, how would I treat a living human beside me? Mm-hmm. You know, how would I treat them? Mm-hmm. And I would certainly not treat them the way I'm about to treat the human that's inside of me. That's right. So I get, I guess whatever people can do to maybe get arm's length to themselves and have that loving relationship with themselves uh, that's not the only way to do it, but that's one thing that I found helpful is to imagine as if I was relating to another person that's who beautiful. also happens to be me. Yeah, no, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. It helps pivot you. It helps orient you in, in such a quick way. I love it. I mean, I think that's, uh, I think that's really, really sage, you know, advice. Um, the only thing I would add is that, you know, we just don't want to make sure we want to make sure it's not coming from a place of fear. Um, because fear really is physiologically, uh, the opposite of love and spiritually, you know, it is thought to be as well. So it's like, oh, I have to not compromise myself or else bad things are going to happen to me or bad things are going to happen to others. Right. So it's, it's, and it's okay if that comes first, because that can be your signal, your marker to pivot to, okay, wait a minute. No, I want to do this because I really do love myself. And I know that loving myself will help me to be the more loving with others. It'll help me to be the person I want to be in this world. And it helped me to live like a life of greater alignment, so to speak. No, I totally get that. And I think when I was talking about sort of the post-it era, Mm -hmm. it was coming from a place of fear. That was my fledgling attempt to start to save myself from myself, but it was very fear-driven. It was, it was not about love at that point, but. But it worked, right? It, it's, it got you there. It got, me, it got me on the right path. Exactly. No. So Adele, I really appreciate you sharing that very powerful personal uh, ex- experience. And I can only imagine, you know, within the experience of yourself, how heavily that must have landed to hear that retort back to that voice. It must have been incredibly, uh, well, you use the word awakening, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was a painful awakening for sure, but yeah, it also changed my life. You know, I've been on this kick lately with clients talking about change and that the grief that must always accompany mm-hmm. change. And even if you're giving up something that you completely intellectually know is wrong for you, it will still be a loss because it was doing something for you. And and it was doing something for you. And there was probably some real love there too. You know, like talk about the disruption of psychedelics, you know, like I've been divorced twice. <laughs> Like not super something I really love talking about publicly on podcasts, but on the other hand, you know, part of talking about it is coming to peace with it myself. And, and so it's like, yeah, I, I can't ever say like, Oh, I got divorced because I chose from a place of wounding or whatever. Yeah. Like part of that's true, but also like there was so much love there too, you know? So I think that love is in everything. It's risky to say that though, because then people will retort, well, what about this? Or what about that? And, right. and so it really does require like a spiritual belief, you know, but there, I really do believe that there is love in everything, whether even though it may be warped or poisoned um, or <clears throat> entangled with, you know, something else that's not quite good. In fact, there's a, there's a woman that I, I did supervision, you know, and for this case, her parents had um, been terribly abusive, you know, really, 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 really bad to the point where they were incarcerated, you know, and she was never going to uh, have any contact with them ever again. And that was actually the, 
best scenario. And I'm a family therapist. So I believe in like cultivating relationships, but no, no, not mm-hmm. in this situation. Like her parents were uh, dangerous. And I remember supervising a therapist around this. And I said, you know, we need to help her to feel the love that her parents had for her despite it all. And I mean, the therapist team, they were like really freaked out about it. Like, holy shit, will that invalidate her experience of the trauma? I said, well, no, because we're not going to invalidate her experience of the trauma. And so they took a risk and they said to her, despite all that happened to you, you know, I believe that deep, deep, deep down underneath your parents did have pure love for you. And the client said that that was one of the most important sessions of her very, very long history of mental health treatment Uh, because yes, there had been heinous abuse and also there had been glimmers, you know, moments of connection between them. And she needed to be able to hold on to that as well as the truth of her parents' capacities and incapacities, you know? And she said, um, later on, even there's only one thing worse than having your parents do what they did to me. And that's believing that there was no love at all. And that really stuck with me. That really taught me a lot. Yeah. That I kind of lost for words hearing that actually <laughs> it's, it's very, very, mm-hmm. it's very powerful. And, 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 one of the things that I've really liked about uh, getting to know some EFT folks is I think that particular slant in psychotherapy seems to have among the best abilities to hang with mixed feelings mm. of, of any approach. I think, I think DBT is up, up there as well. Mm-hmm. Do you have any general suggestions around how clients, clinicians can hang with mixed feelings, mixed truths, mm-hmm. uh, multiple truths at the same time? It just seems so critical to life to have that flexibility to be able to hold concurrently mm-hmm. multiple ideas and to access multiple things at, at the same time. Just just while we have the opportunity to chat, I'd love to get your take on that. Yeah, well, I think that timing is everything. And um, not everyone is ready or resourced to be able to do that work at the outset. And that's why you'll never hear me speak negatively of any psychotherapy um, across the variety of psychotherapies, because I do believe that different entry points are necessary um, for different people in terms of where they're at, uh, in terms of their values, in terms of what's important to them, um, in terms of what they're capable of holding. Uh, But when when someone is um, presenting as um, either needing, wanting, seeking this the support to hold multiplicity, to hold um, mixed emotions, then my belief is that uh, we need to go slow. And uh, in the context of a solid container. Um, But one way that you can do it really, really simply is to think about emotions like colors. And so you have your primary emotions, which is your primary colors. And then you have your other emotional experiences, which can you can relate to like um, a secondary color. Is that what they call them? Secondary colors? I actually don't know. I you think know, so. Primary yeah. colors. And then they're all mixed, you know, using the primary colors. And so disappointment is a great example. So people, people often experience disappointment. That's a mixed emotion. And it's, it's uh, thought to be a fusion of sadness and anger. Now, the problem with a fusion of sadness and anger 
being disappointment is that sadness um, has really, really different needs than does anger. And so, and they also have different physiological experiences. So one is like more low and slow. The other one is more up and straight, you know, moving forward. And so when you put those two opposing forces together, it creates a stuckness. And so one of the simplest ways is to then say, okay, um, we know now that disappointment is thought to be a fusion of sadness and anger. Which one did I feel, do I feel the most strongly sadness or anger lean into the sadness first, learn what the sadness has to tell you. Um, heed the need, which is most oftentimes comfort, you know, and then, all right, let's move on to the anger. Learn about what the anger has to sh share. Heed the need. Maybe it's the setting of a boundary or the expression of assertion and then check in again. Okay. Is there anything else? And so it's kind of like breaking all of the more complex emotional experiences that we have as humans down to these primary emotions. And you can use different, you know, groupings of primary emotions. So there's fear, joy, disgust, anger, sadness, and shame, for example. You can try to distill them all the way down. And then the more you learn about the emotion, the more you can play with it because shame is often a cover um, for um, unexpressed anger. So shame is, you know, so there's different types of shame. There's adaptive shame, maladaptive shame. I don't really like using those words because of the judgment, although they make sense, but like, so the, the kind of shame that's not in response to something that you did that hurts another, you know, the kind of adaptive shame in group settings, like, oh, if I feel shame right now, usually that's a cover for, you know, vulnerability that is difficult to express or anger that is difficult to express. And so then you can start doing like a little bit of an excavation within yourself to kind of move through uh, those layers, if that makes sense. That is super helpful. Super, super helpful. Adele, I want to give you the last word. Uh, is there anything that you would like to convey to the audience about our topic today or anything that would be really meaningful for you to get out into the world? I know you have many, many opportunities to do this, uh, but in this particular instance, what would you like to get out there? I guess what I would want to say, and it's funny, I feel emotional even saying it. I just I want to express like deep gratitude to my mentors and those who have been there, you know, throughout my healing journey, because even five years ago, I could have never imagined myself on a podcast talking about my infertility struggles, talking about being divorced, not once, but twice, you know? And so I just feel really, really grateful to them. I also feel really grateful to you, Pete, for interest in this topic, because it's really like, I'm not there yet in terms of like fully understanding it all. And so I just really appreciate the opportunity to kind of unpack these things with you who I feel really cares, you know? And so it kind of feels safe to kind of play around with these topics and figure things out. And I'm really grateful to, to Stacy Cosmerly who connected us. She's just you know, a beautiful, a gem of a human and, and grateful to whoever's listening and whoever's like made it all the way to the end. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for joining us on this journey. And, and I'm just really interested in other people's thoughts and concepts so that we can continue to redefine, reconceptualize, revitalize, um, this concept of love that seems so important, not just in psychotherapy, but, um, in our broader culture. So thank you. Oh, such a lovely message. 
And I think there's a few things that I want to say. The first would be, I'm just so struck by the strength that you have in your vulnerability, you know, to speak to these things. It demonstrates a real uh, strength, which is, is just really inspiring, actually. Thank you. And I really, really appreciate the conversation itself. It was like a psychedelic experience on some level. <laughs> it opened, no, I'm, I'm serious. It opened up a lot of dimensions for me in terms of thinking about, you know, this concept and, and how, and, and I, I don't want to pollute it by say using it, but, you know, uh, employing yeah. it uh, yeah. to, to, to the betterment of, of humanity, uh, not, not just clients, but just humanity essentially. So yeah, no, there's, there's a lot to unpack here. I rarely re-listen to the podcast because by the time that I've edited them and, and been in them, like, okay, like it's, it's ready to go into the world. See you later. And I hope everyone enjoys it. But this has been one of my favorites and uh, definitely one I'm going to re-listen to again, mm. just to sort of uh, absorb it all. So thank you so much for the personal vulnerability and for the wisdom and for uh, opening my mind up to this really, really interesting and fascinating and, and, and deep topic. So thank you. Thank you, Pete. My pleasure. Well, I really hope that you enjoyed the podcast as much as I did. If you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. And now for the mandatory disclaimer. This podcast represents the opinions of Dr. Kelly and that of his guests. Content of the podcast should not be taken as psychological advice and is for general information only. Please consult your mental health professional for any specific questions around your psychological health. In no way does listening to our content establish a psychologist-client relationship. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. All people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect patient confidentiality. Finally, this podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast.